Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Glad you're here at Harvest with us this morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and it is my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. And if you are just joining us for the first time uh, this Sunday, we're in the middle of a very short series on the topic of stewardship. And last week, we learned that stewardship begins with this acknowledgement that the assets we have in our hands are not actually ours, but are gifts entrusted to us for the sake of somebody who has given them to us. And so it's with that perspective that this morning, I want to preach on this topic of stewarding our time. And I think time is a subject that clearly is on all of our minds because you guys all look dead today. You look the way I feel. It was a rough night. It's bad enough just having a normal Saturday night's sleep, but to lose an hour is really challenging, isn't it? And so right now this morning, even physically, you are feeling the full weight of the value of even one hour of our lives. Well, I want to read from, from Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 to 12, and you've got to hang on with me because the psalm gets a little rough, it gets a little dark, but it gets better. Okay, and so hang on with me as we read this. Psalm chapter 90, verse 1, 1 to 12, is what it says. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, <coughs> saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's potent stuff. It's hard to read a passage like that without strong feelings emerging in us as we think about what these words say and then think about what our lives are like. It's observed very often that time is the great equalizer. We've all been given different amounts of different things. We've been given different amounts of money, of talent, of intelligence, of physical attractiveness, of height, of hair, of whatever. You name it, we all have different amounts. But the one thing we all have the same of is the same 24 hours assigned to each day of our lives. That is the one equalizing commodity, the one asset that no one human being ever gets more of than anybody else. 
And that's why it's such an important thing to dwell on as we consider the way that we steward our whole lives. Every human being has 86,400 seconds a day, and it's going to come. And you can't stockpile these minutes or seconds. You can't store them up for a rainy day. If you run out, you can't go to the time store and buy some more time. We use these phrases like giving away our time, donating our time, buying some time, saving some time. But all of those things are fallacies. You can't do any of those things with time because time relentlessly and mercilessly marches on. Whether you want to or not, all 86,400 seconds a day are being spent every single day. You don't have a choice about the matter. You certainly can't hit the pause button. I've been playing this game called Ruzzle on my phone lately, and it's one of these word games, but because it's a word game, they don't want you to cheat and pause and look up words in the dictionary and all that, so there's no pause. And it never fails. When I start to play around, the phone will ring or someone will look for me, and i got this game going, the timer's running, I really want to beat this person, but I have to attend to real life. I at least have the good sense to know that real life out here is more important than the game on my phone, but it's, it just nags at me. Oh, man, I'm losing. Every second I'm talking to you, I'm losing because I can't pause this thing. And that's actually what time is like. Maybe you don't have your junk together. Maybe you don't even know why you're here, but you can't hit the pause button while you figure all that out. Like it or not, every day, every second ticks by, and each second of our lives carries a verdict with it, doesn't it? Every second of your life carries a verdict, either it was worthwhile or worthless. Either you spent and invested that second, or it was wasted along with the thousands of, thousands of others that get wasted along the way. A dollar lost can be re-earned. A moment passed, you might be able to work your way back to an opportunity like that, but a second that is gone, you can't get it back in your life. That's the one thing you can't turn back and reclaim. Every second that is passed is gone, inaccessible to you forever. And the verdict of all of those seconds of our lives added together in sum, that tells the story of your life. How you spend each second literally has a bearing on the story of what your whole life meant, what you did with it. This passage we read today is the only psalm that is attributed to Moses, the man of God. He's the one who God raised up as a leader to lead his, his, his chosen nation, Israel, out of captivity and slavery in Egypt to enter the promised land. Now, you've got to understand that two-thirds of his life was marked by a relationship with these people. The first third of his life was Cush, man. He grew up the son of Pharaoh, adopted, and he, he was wealthy. He was a, full of authority and power and influence. He had everything a person in Egypt could want. And then one day he realized, oh, man, I'm not Egyptian. I'm an Israelite like all these people. And he watched the slaves being abused. And one day, in, in the spirit of defending his countrymen, he struck down an abusive Egyptian foreman, and then he was exiled. And the second third of his life, he spent hiding, running from Pharaoh, knowing that he was a fugitive on the run because he had murdered a man. And he did it because he wanted to stand up for and defend his people, the Israelites. 
And then the last third of his life was spent basically leading them out of slavery the whole time while they grumbled, complained, doubted him, accused him of bad leadership. This is not a happy assignment in life. You don't want to be Moses. And now towards the end of his life, it's very likely, I believe this to be true, that the words of this psalm parallel the events of Moses' life recorded for us in the, in the, in the book of Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 was a big, big chapter in Moses' life. The beginning of the chapter, you have to remember that Moses had two siblings with whom he was very close. How many of you are very close to your siblings? Okay, good. I'm very close to mine. He had two siblings, a sister and a brother. They were very, very tight. You know, you see some of those families, like, it's almost uncomfortable how close they are. That's that family right there. And his sister dies at the beginning of the chapter. And by the end of the chapter, his brother Aaron is also dead. So in this one short season of his life, he loses the two people that were most close to him, the ones who were his partners in ministry. And he's alone in a real sense in the world. And in between these two tragic deaths, we get even sadder episode. He has the the failure that defines his whole life. Do you ever have a failure, a mistake, a missed opportunity that defined your whole life? You, you can't shake it. You can't run from that ghost. It chases you. And every time you have a good day, that little mistake catches up to you and goes, Hey, hey, psst, remember? You stink. Do you remember that thing you did? And that's the failure which Moses experiences between the bookends of the death of his sister and the death of his brother. A failure so great, it disqualified him from seeing the end of the movie. He was leading these people for 38 years through the, through the desert, the wilderness, to get them into the promised land. And God says to him, thanks for doing that, but because of what you did, you don't get to cross the river and enter in. Now, that's, that's a whole other sermon right there. It's hard to even accept such a harsh penalty for what he did, but that's what it is to live in the sight of a holy God who doesn't play games with his standards. And so it's understandable then that the tone of the psalm is not bright and cheery. It's philosophical. It's reflective. It's dark because that's what's going on in Moses' life. His relationship to time is not altogether positive right now because imagine his situation sitting in the ashes of his failure, reeling with disappointment that at the end of his life, near the climax of everything, he gets cut off from the story. After leading these grumbling people for 38 years, they push him to the edge. He does one rash thing, and they end up participating in the loss of everything he's been working towards in his twilight years. On top of that, He's alone without his siblings. And he's sitting there thinking, because he knows too, that his own death is not very far away. I really believe that when we get to a certain point in our lives, we can feel when, when the end is near. We know. Some of you have said goodbye to loved ones, and you could tell in their eyes they knew the end was approaching, and they were making their peace with that. I think Moses knew that his own death would come soon. In fact, it did. It, it followed very closely on the heels of the events of Numbers 20. And as he's contemplating about life and how short it is and how unsatisfying it can be, in some ways how unfair, 
our portion in life can feel sometimes. I think he was really wrestling with the meaning, the significance of this one short turn on the ride that God gives us. To his credit, Moses does not stay in that dark place. He doesn't park himself there. And that's the error I think so many of us make, because we get to a dark place, and everyone around us understands why we're there, but we actually start to feel comfortable, and we don't want to get out. We stay parked there. What God leads Moses to do, he says, all right, you've stayed there long enough. Reach back out to me. I will rescue you from that dark place. And so that's exactly what Moses does. And though he can't make a bold statement in his own power, he makes a plea to God. He asks God for help in a place that he can't do it himself. And he says, God, teach us. And by us, I think he really means me and all those losers who helped ruin my life. But he's saying, me especially, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think Moses' plea in verse 12 is so important to us. He says, teach us to number our days. I think what that means is to say this. Consider how few those days really are when you start counting them. Teach us to value them properly so that we will not squander the few days we have chasing foolish things only to come to the end and say, what was all that for? He says, Teach us to number our days, to acknowledge the shortness of our lives, so that while we still have today, we can learn to live wisely and not foolishly. I think that means at least two important things. I think it means that we are meant to make the the most of each day, to make each day count for something, and then zooming out to make all of our days, the sum total of our lifetime, count for something. Are you with me? Do you get that? So I think to to number our days properly is first to realize every day, every pixel matters. To give significance and meaning and power to each day of our lives and ask that each day would count. But then to zoom out and say in a sum aggregate, the whole total of our lifetime on the earth should also count for something. Making each of our days count. You know, I took Moses' advice to teach us to number our days. I took it rather literally. So I want to share that with you right now. Uh, back in November, November 23rd of 2012, to be exact, um, I was really stimulated by an idea somebody shared with me in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I, I took up this, this exercise in response to that inspiration. He was just pointing out that to number our days, sometimes we need a little visual help to think about how few days we really have. So I consulted some actuarial tables and found out that at that point in my life, the average life expectancy for me as an American male was 76.2 years. Now, counting for the fact that I hoped to die in my sleep, I figured out how many days I'd have if I lived an exact actuarially average lifespan. And what I realized was on November 23rd, 2012, I had exactly 11,363 days left in my life. And I looked at that number, I wrote it down on a sticky note, and I got depressed. I'm like, that doesn't seem like that much. 11,000. It's a lot, but I think it's going to go kind of fast. So I bought 11,363 plastic BBs. 0.2 0.2 gram airsoft pellets, 
And I loaded up this vase. And it's been my practice since November 23rd every day to pull out a BB. And I don't just dump it in the discard cup. I think about that. And I go, another one bites the dust, man. And I hold that BB and I think about, was it worth it? Because that's one I'm not going to have back. Was it worth it this day I spent pulling a, a shift, getting my stuff done, running after my kid's crazy schedule? Was it worth it? Because that little pellet is a 24-hour day I'll never get back. And when I explained to my children what this was, they got so scared and sad and free. It's kind of morbid if you think about it, especially my son Elijah. He hates, I think he's secretly going to the discard cup and putting BBs back in. He really thinks this is like my life. I'm ebbing, it's ebbing away. But that exercise has helped me to be a little more sober about the idea that I'm actually not going to live forever. This is it right here. And when it runs out, I run out. And all my plans, my dreams, my ambitions, my woulda, coulda, shoulda, done. That's it. And to look at that sitting on my credenza every day in my home office has done something deep inside of me. I recommend highly that you do something visual. My friend who pastors in Ohio, um, he actually took a big bushel thing and he filled it with kernels of of corn because he lives in that kind of place. It's a little bigger, um, but it sits in the corner of his office. And I, I think whatever it takes, something visual to remind you, you don't wake up to an infinite number of tomorrows, but they are running out one day at a time. You know, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't think Jesus is saying it's, it's wrong to plan for the future or think about the next day. But what he's saying is if you obsess too much over the future, the danger, the risk you run is that you will not actually be satisfied or fully present in today. And the truth is, you don't really know that much about even whether tomorrow will come. You can make plans for tomorrow, and that could be a day for you that will not come, because your days will be up. Uh, Elder Young Lee and I were driving uh, up kind of far distance in the middle of the storm, the snowstorm this past week, and we drove past an accident that I think for certain had to be fatal. I've never seen a car that mangled, that cut up in pieces after it hit a semi-truck. And I thought, that is a visual picture of the fragility, the unreliability of this concept of tomorrow. Jesus' brother James also wrote this, James 4, 13 to 14. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What James is reminding us is not to be presumptuous about the future. It may come, it may not come, but the point is this. This is the day in which we are called to live faithfully and fully engaged before God. You miss this day, and you might miss the last day of all days for you. It might be the last day you spend on this planet. And so it's important that in the stewardship of our time, 
We give value to every pixel in the picture, that every individual day of our lives matters. There should be no ordinary, whatever, throwaway, disposable days, because each day is a gift entrusted to us to steward. Now, when I talk about the stewardship of time, I'm not going to run some, some mindless Stephen Covey time management seminar. That's important stuff. It's valuable. If that's what you need help with, buy a Stephen Covey book, buy David Allen's Getting Things Done, Go for it. That's good stuff to learn. I am not looking at time stewardship in terms of squeezing the maximum productivity out of every minute. I used to teach it that way. I was taught it that way. That to steward our time means you're frantically running around going, I can't waste time. The Lord wants me to be busy, busy, busy all the time. And, you know, some people are wired that way. They're like sharks. They'll die if they ever stop moving. And it is really, really hard sometimes to be around people who are constantly like, Haunted by the ghost of if I sit still, I'm wasting my life. Time management, stewardship of time for me is not about being obsessively busy, full of activity, producing, producing, making, making, earning, earning. But it is about this. It is about finding God and his power, his meaning, his purpose, his significance, his beauty in every single day that we can. You know, recently... I watched a TED Talk. Do you guys watch the TED Talks? They're great. There are ideas worth sharing, and every presenter is given a maximum of like 18 minutes to share about a great idea. Some of them are life-changing ideas. This is a guy named Caesar Kuriyama. He's an artist, and he shared about a project he started when he was in his 20s, and he calls it One Second Every Day. Have you guys heard of this project? So what, the idea of one second every day is he captures one second of video. You'd be surprised how much can actually be captured in one second. I, I, was, I was kind of caught off guard by how much I could figure out about this guy's life. But what he does is he takes one second of video clips from every day that he thinks represents a significant moment. Something that summed up that day or that he never wants to forget about that day. And he's been compiling them into this montage of seconds so that by the time he's like 60, he'll have like an 18-minute video or something like that. And so the idea is he's collecting the seconds of his life day by day, one second at a time. And he showed clips from his life video, and it was startling. It was like, wow, look, at, you can really begin to catch the contours, the flavor of a person's life just by peeking in on one second of each day. He even developed an app in case you want to do the same thing. You can shoot video. It'll create the montage for you, and you can share with your friends. A lot of people have taken them up on that. There are a lot of copycat projects, and some of them are, frankly, very depressing. I watch one second a day of a person's 25th year, and I'm like, dude, you've got to go out to the store and get a life, man. Like 80% of the days are him walking in and out of the, uh, the convenience store. <laughs> that's, it, that's your life? And so here's one of the side effects, the interesting side effects that Caesar Kuriyama shared about in his TED Talk. He said, some days as I got ready to compile the video, I realized I was struggling to find one second that was worth remembering in that day. It was a throwaway day, a ho-hum day, a day spent lounging, vegging, lying about. And I, I was tempted to take a shot of the ceiling, maybe just my, my blankets all messed up. But really, he said, what, one thing it started to do to him was that he, he developed a hunger as he watched all of this, a, a deep desire and motivation to live each day as significantly as possible. 
He started thinking at first because he wanted a good video clip for the montage, but after all, it became a life habit that he said every day should be filled with at least one moment of real beauty, real meaning, real significance, something worth recording forever, so that when you look back on the story of your life, that one second captures well a moment, an incident, an encounter that made that day redeemed, worthwhile. I really loved the idea of that project. Here's another aspect to add to that, because I'm not talking about becoming artists and looking for some cool way to show people how full and active and envious people should be of your life. But here's, a, here's what I think really we need to be looking at. In Ephesians 5, here's what Paul writes. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. I think as we look for significance and value in every day of our lives, we're not going to find it in just being collectors of extreme experiences. There was a season in my life when that's what I was living for. I wanted each day to have something cool, something worth telling the grandkids about. You know that phrase? I don't even have grandkids yet, but I'm already storing up stuff. I've got to tell them. And when I say that, what I'm saying is I want to brag about how cool my life was. I think that's what Facebook does for us. It allows everyone to look in and go, see how awesome my life is? How's yours? See how exciting? I'm in different places every day. I'm at different concerts. I have different... And we're trying to show people, look, my life wasn't worthless. I tasted a lot. I saw a lot. I did a lot. I heard a lot. I knew everybody. I got 20,000 friends, man. But the real thing we're looking for is not just experience, pleasure, interesting things, novelty. We are ultimately looking for God because if we don't attach this finite life to an infinite God, our lives will slowly leak out and have no meaning whatsoever. We will simply be slavish collectors of neural impulses. We will be collectors of sparks in the brain that said, hey, pleasure, hey, sadness. Is that all we want to be? Or do we want to experience what it means to be fully alive, fully human, before a God who is infinite, majestic, who looks at life through the lens of purpose and meaning and beauty and glory. I believe that God redeems our lives by attaching our story to his story. And if your life is not attached to his story, it's not really a story that too many people will consider worth remembering. I think it's easy to lose sight of this. To start living for things that have no real worth because slowly, little by little, our daily lives are being disconnected from an infinite God. And as a result, some of us lose our moorings. And we are like ships adrift at sea, wondering when it's just going to end because this doesn't feel like living to us. Now, how are we going to correct the course if that's the case? I think in order to make sure that we are not losing our daily lives, the moments of our days, to meaninglessness, it's important to reflect and record. I'll just give you those two words, reflect and record. Reflect meaning I think we need a little time to pause each day and actually reflect. Not think the same small thoughts over and over, but really think about it. Why am I in the situation I'm in? 
Why am I experiencing the trouble I have? What decisions have I made that led to where I am? Where is my life exactly heading? I would recommend this. I would take the bookends of every day, at least five minutes, the first few awakeful moments in bed after you hit the, the, not the snooze button, but after you turn the alarm off and you're committed to actually waking up, stay in bed an extra five minutes. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go to the toilet. Don't brush your teeth. Just lay there, stare at the ceiling, and before you start your day, just think, how am I going to look for God in this day? What's coming up on the calendar for me today that might be significant in an eternal perspective? What is it that I owe the people around me that I haven't given them? Could it be that if you pause and reflect, you realize how absent you've been in the life of somebody who loves you, who needs you? But if you don't reflect, you'll never know. It's like the person who never checks their breath. You know, you, just a little exercise. Oh, my gosh. And you'll get a, a mint or a piece of gum. But some of us never do that. We don't realize what our lives are doing to people, what they look like, where they're headed, because we don't reflect. And so I want to recommend to you, reflect for the first five minutes of every day and the last five minutes of every day. Just time out and think about where your life is headed. What meaning, beauty, glory was found in that day. And then I think it's important to record. I like Cyril, uh, I mean Caesar's idea because there's like this tangible Forever record, a visual record of his day. For some of us, we might want to pick and take him up on that, buy that app, and begin recording the seconds of our lives. I think it's 99 cents. If you really want to get into it, 99 cents is cheap. He saves you a lot of work if that's what you want to do. Some of us, we're old school. We, we want a nice pen and a moleskin you know, notebook. We prefer the old school method of just writing stuff down, journaling. What I've chosen to do, because I can't stand right, I get carpal tunnel just writing these days. And so uh, I love my phone. I don't have it in my bag right now, but I've been using this. I've been using a program called the Day One Journal. Have any, any of you heard of this? Now, I don't think I should use pulpit time to sell a product too much. That's not my point here. But here's why I use it, because it allows me. That's actually a, a clip from a screenshot from my actual Day One Journal. It allows me to embed clips of video or a photo and record stories about significant moments in my day. And now, lately, I find myself obsessively doing that. Like, after something important happens, I pull over for a second, and I just record. That was really a moment I don't want to forget. And here's a little snapshot I took to remind me of that. Um, and so there it is. That's a story of, about a week and a half of my life. And as I review, I look back at it, I realize just how many significant moments and significant relationships are found in my life. Because I'm a Mac guy, uh, it syncs seamlessly across all my devices, so wherever I am, I can quickly record stuff I want to remember. Okay. Whatever your chosen method, you, you can black that screen out before somebody gets upset. I think he makes it for Android, too, but... Um, I want you to know that whatever your chosen method, if you don't record, you may lose that long, sweeping view of how significant life can be. Some of you are in a jam today. And it wasn't a jam, a, a difficulty that arose overnight. It wasn't something that bum-rushed you, mugged you. It's something that crept up on you. It was happening over the length of days and weeks and months and even years, and bam, there you are. You, your life is in a, a terrible situation. But part of the reason we get to that place is because we never really reflect 
on where we're going. We're just so busy putting our heads down, running into the wind. We never pause and go, where exactly am I? And don't you know, isn't it true, that every, every moment spent running hard without knowing your direction is a moment spent getting more lost, further from home. Here's another aspect of what it means to number our days properly. It is to make all of our days count. Not just each individual pixel, but that when they resolve into an entire image, the image has meaning and beauty and significance. Look what Moses writes in the psalm. You can tell what kind of frame of mind is in. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. Thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you, who are eternal, sweep away people in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And that happened agriculturally in his day. It was an arid place, and at night the dew would settle. In the morning it would nurture the the, the little sprouts to come up, and you'd see all this fresh young grass, but then the scorching, withering heat of the sun would dry it up, and it would become tiny little pieces of hay and straw by the evening. He said, that's what our lives are like. So much hope, so much potential, so much optimism in the morning, but by evening you're like, what happened? Where did it go? Do you ever feel like that? Do you remember when you were 16 and you really thought your whole life was ahead of you? When everything was possible. Some of you are 16 or younger in this room. You really do believe that you're going to live forever. There's so many days ahead of you. And then, bam, you're going to be me. (laughs) 45, more in the rear view than in the windshield ahead of you. Saying stuff like, you you know, I make sounds when I'm playing ping pong and I have to pick up. I make sounds like, Already I'm doing that. It's messed up. And I'm only halfway through. You will be where I am in the blink of an eye. So to number our days rightly is to realize when you count up our days, they are not so many as we think. Remember what James said? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, my son Noah loves to tease me about being old. Every other second, he (laughs) says, I was once in your shoes. You will be old and half as sexy as me when you're that age. (laughs) It happens quickly, son. You blink and you're almost done. Where did the time go? Dr. Seuss wrote a famous little poem where he, he asks, How did it get so late so soon? How did it get so late so soon? I want to show you another illustration because I love BBs. And I want to just show you a little bit of an illustration about the actual brevity of our days. So if, in fact, a human life is approximately 75 years, give or take, this is a human life. Each of these jars these vases, has about 15 years worth of days in it, give or take about 25 or 30, something like that. It bothered me that I couldn't be more precise, but I don't want to buy another jar just to, you, you don't know the difference, right? So just take for granted, each of these is 15 years. When you're just born, look at how many days, you can just blow off about 80 of them, right, in a row, nothing. 
You have so many days that half of them can be spent laying around just eating and pooping and nothing. Because that's what it is to be young. you got nothing but the sweep of all your days. How many of you are 15, roughly, give or take five years? So if that's you, this many are gone now. This is what you've got left. Don't be too snide about us old guys. You just lost a fifth of your life already. It's done. How many of you are in your mid-20s around the age 30, 30, 35, somewhere in that range? Guess what? Let's take another 15 years right off the table. This is what you got left. That's it, man. One at a time, they're gone. And then you're done. See you in heaven, we hope. All right. How many of you are in your 40s? Come on, brothers and sisters. This is us right here, man. I want you to look right here at how many we don't have. This is it. All done. Blown. Kaput. This is what we got left. How many of you are around 60? We love you. That's you right there. This is that time where every day counts more because you finally arrive at a place where you realize they don't last forever. Each day is a gift. Each day should be meaningful. We learn in those years to be more generous, more selfless, more fully alive, more engaging because we realize when we don't have as many left, how precious the ones already spent really were. That's why we say correctly, youth is wasted on the young. And it really is. I don't know if you who are young and healthy and making fun of others have taken the first 15 and really done something with them that you can stand before your God and say, that was worth one-fifth of my earthly life. But I hope that you can. I hope that somehow you're not just busy putting in the earbuds, jacking up the volume, and letting the time fly by with no significance, no purpose. Because just like that, they disappear. They're gone forever. You can't get them back. If my son thinks pulling one out a day is depressing, (laughs) and when I did that, I was like, come on! This represents that. And suddenly I didn't feel so rich so optimistic. What I felt was, man, every BB better drip with significance as I put it from this jar into the other one. I'm recycling. I'm using these to actually shoot my gun and hit paper targets, so don't be alarmed. I'm using them. You know, as I look at that and think about what a human life is and how few days we really have, I thought about something else. I realized how greedy the human heart can be. The heart is a bottomless pit. It's a black hole, isn't it? We want so much. In fact, what our hearts really want, if we're honest about it, is more than one lifetime and one planet can possibly deliver. I just think about my own life. I've got at least a thousand books I own, which I have yet to read, but I want so badly to read them. I've got a thousand MP3s I own, which I won't probably listen to before Jesus returns. I keep a list of places on my laptop that I want to see before I die. And I don't know if you're like me, but I can't even look at a globe 
without shaking in frustration that this life is too short, my funds are too limited, and every time I spin the globe and put my finger anywhere, I'm like, dang, what is over there? I want to see it before I go. I want to see this whole big planet. I want to go to Nova Scotia. I want to go to Maine. I want to see the desert. I, I just want to go everywhere. And it obsesses me sometimes. I changed my major five times in college, not because I was stupid or lazy, because I wanted to learn everything. I could not make up my mind. They said, no, you've got to pick one life and live it. I'm like, forget you. I'm going to try to have at least five simultaneously. Because I couldn't stand the idea that I have to just pick one. Some of us are like that with life partners. You only get one, but sometimes it's like, I love falling in love. I love chasing, but then the making a whole life, that part, not as alluring. It's difficult. Because what the heart wants is actually more than one lifetime could possibly deliver. Even though I am deeply satisfied with parts of my life and parts of my relationships, there are things all around the world, everywhere I look, that entice me, call out to me, and say legitimately, I like that too. I wish I could have it all. I wish I could be married and be single at the same time. Wouldn't that be a trick? I wish I could have children and not have children all at the same time. I wish I could get a house and I wish I could be homeless. I wish I could have a job and I wish I was unemployed. The heart just keeps wanting and wanting and wanting until there's no end to it. And I believe it's God's fault. Okay? That's, that's us wanting to eat the world. So greedy. And even if you eat it, it's not enough. You're like, I wonder if there's some other planets. Because this one world is simply not enough for the depth of the greed and the want and the desire of a human heart. I believe it's God's fault in one way. Got to be careful how I say that. But it's because he's the one who put eternity into man's heart. What that means is he deposited in us a craving, a need, a hunger that there was no way would get satisfied by a finite reality. He made us to want more than this world could possibly ever deliver in a way as a mechanism to drive us to something beyond this world to show us you could chase and catch everything that catches your eye on this planet and you will find that you are still not satisfied. Have you ever met anybody who was at the top of whatever game they were playing and they said in public, I'm done, I don't need anything, I'm so happy, You kill, get, take out a gun right now, I'm so happy in this moment, I, I'm finished. I beat the boss, I finished the game, man, are there any more levels? I'm done, I think that's it. Have you ever met anyone who honestly said that to you? That person doesn't exist because chase and catch as often as you might. There is no way you're going to be satisfied from this lifetime. It is simply too small for the way that God made our hearts. This world, this one life, one career, one marriage, one family cannot possibly deliver to us everything we wanted out of this life. I don't want to say that to depress you. I'm saying that to give you a sense of perspective about how you feel about your life. Because the myth we will often chase is this myth that if I just run hard enough, if I change scenery, trade up, upgrade, I can get the life I want. And the answer is no, you really can't. Remember that house you bought that you loved so much, you were so proud of? Remember that car you bought that in the middle of the night you sneak out to the garage and you go, oh yeah, I still own it. Oh man, that's mine. 
you ever rub yourself on a car? Just, oh, man, it's mine. You ever do that? Remember how you felt when you first got it? And now today, you don't even wipe your feet before you sit down. Say, whatever, I'll get another one someday. It's life. If you're looking to get full from eating this world, you will eat and eat and eat and never feel full. Eternity in our hearts means that we have to temper what we want from this life and learn to trust that what God has given us is the life he expects us to live. Listen to this poem by a guy named Jason Lehman. He submitted it, I think, in the 80s to Dear Abby. Do you remember that, that advice column, Dear Abby? He was 14 years old when he wrote this poem. It's called Present Tense. Here's how it reads. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Because what I always wanted was what I didn't yet have. And what I realized in reading this poem and reflecting on these passages these last couple weeks was that you cannot possibly hope to steward your life until you learn to accept your life. Every choice you make represents a thousand you can't make. When I got down on my knee and asked Jeannie to marry me, I unasked all other three billion and a half women on this earth not to marry me. I broke a lot of hearts, I can tell you. (laughs) But when I asked one woman, I unasked three and a half billion. When I chose this calling and it chose me, I was forever marked by it. This is the life I have. There are things in my life I wish I could eject. There are things not in my life I wish I could acquire. But such as it is, this is the life that my loving, sovereign, all-knowing Father gave to me. This is my life. And this is your life. I'm not telling you that if you're in a terrible, abusive situation, just accept it. I'm not telling you don't have dreams or plans or ambitions, but I'm telling you until you get to a place in your life where you can look at your life, you can look at God and say, you must know me, you must still be in control, and this is the life you gave me. How am I to follow you in it? How am I to honor you in this life which on some days I want to reject? Where are you, God, in this life you've given me? David's praise leader, a guy named Asaph, wrote a very powerful psalm, Psalm 73, in which the first half, he looks at the world and he's so dripping with jealousy. I got to go to early morning prayer and praise team practice and I'm always in the temple, always singing at my best behavior. And then I look at the world and look at them out there, man. 
They look so carefree. They're like, whatever. We get to use all our money. We don't have to give 10% to anything. I get to sleep in on Sunday mornings. And, you know, he's looking at the world and going, why do they have such an easy, carefree life? Why does nothing ever haunt their conscience? Why don't they bear burdens? Why is everything so easy, like water off a duck's back? Why is it so hard for me? And the first half of that psalm is just depressing as heck. It's just hard to read. But then he says something powerful in the hinge in the middle. He says, then I entered the sanctuary of God. He walked into the room where God lives. He looked at God and suddenly the whole argument turned on its head. And in the presence of God, when his eyes stopped focusing on all the things he wanted that he didn't have, and he looked at God, he remembered why he could be content and accepting of the life that he'd been given. It wasn't a perfect life, but it was the life which his father had given him. And it was the one life he was called to steward for the glory of that father. Listen to what he writes towards the end of that psalm. So powerful. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And I love that word portion because it reminds me, it's not the whole, it is the part which is mine. My heart wants all of it, but my Father has given me a part of the whole. And it's the part that I'm meant to carry and to honor him in. <clears throat> Let me wrap up with just this, these concluding things here. In November of 2006, the editors of Smith Magazine started an online experiment. It was birthed out of one of the editors and an encounter he had with his grandfather where he realized, I don't know my grandfather's story. And the whole idea behind Smith Magazine is it's a magazine designed for people to share their life stories, to be inspired by the fact that everybody walking past you in public has a story, and this is a place where they get to tell them. So what they did was he came up with this idea. Uh, it wasn't a, a genuine idea, a unique idea to him, but it was um, something that Ernest Hemingway is famously quoted as saying, give us, give us your life in six words, and he gave six words. And so they had this idea, let's invite people visiting our blog to sum up their entire life in six words. They call them six-word memoirs, six-word memoirs. And it was really a powerful thing to read. They were surprised at the flood of thousands and thousands of these little memoirs, the kind of thing which you could engrave on a headstone, and you're like, huh, that's clever. And some of them were so hope-filled, so positive and, and optimistic but so many of them were just drenched in regret and resignation. They turned a good number of these into a book called, look at the title of the book, it says it all. It speaks to the general tone of most of the six-word memoirs they get. Not quite what I was planning. That's a six-word memoir in itself. It's actually his grandfather's. And that could be said positively. It turned out way better than I thought. But for a lot of people, that's the story of their life. I thought it was going to be different than this. I thought I would be with a different thing, a different situation, a different person, a different family. I thought I'd be living in a different place. Some of us are so offended. We still live in Illinois where the winters are like this. I really thought I'd be richer. 
I thought I'd look different. I thought I'd actually be happier. I thought. I planned, but what happened was not quite what I planned. And I really believe that apart from God, that's all we're going to have to say. It's going to be hard to find any redeeming meaning in your life if you tear your life away on the perforations from God who is infinite and eternal. So let me close with one of my favorite passages. In Psalm 39, verses 4 to 7, listen to what he says. And those last six words are what I like to label David's six-word memoir. I hope that it could be ours as well. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? And I know that's the question on some of your hearts. This is it. This is my life. This is everything. This is what I get. Knowing this, where do I put my hope? And David's resolution to that great question is really the only resolution that could ever satisfy us. And he says simply in six words, my only hope is in you. You've just invested or wasted, depending on your perspective, like 45 minutes, 45 times 60 seconds of your precious and finite life listening to these words. But if they are the words of God to you and you heed them and you walk in his ways, these 45 minutes may be used by God to change all the remaining thousands of days you have ahead of you. While it is called today, you can actually come to life. You can live. It's my prayer that you will do that. Let's stop just marking the days. Let's be fully present. Let's make the most of every day. And then in the end, let's be able to say we made the most of all our days. May God help us Steward our time so that we find our lives in him. Why don't we pray together? If you were to write a six-word memoir today, think about for a moment what it might read. What six words would speak to the sum of your life to this point? How meaningful is each of your days? So far, looking backwards, how meaningful have all of your days?
taken together been? Like me, you have a jar filled with days you have left. And it's not a very big jar. What are we going to do with that? I will just leave it at that and invite you now to sit quietly before God and wrestle through that question a little bit. How will I steward this great commodity of time, the days and years I've been assigned? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.